Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Ron Bayman, again, who has volunteered himself to come back on the podcast. Normally we have to drag people kicking and screaming into our studio to give them and their papers a kicking. But Ron has decided he's a glutton for punishment and he's come back. So um, tell us about your previous episode, Ron, just as a quick recap, because that was actually one of our better performing episodes, remarkably. I, I wouldn't say it's any good because I never know why they uh, get, become popular. Sometimes the ones that I think are terrible or weird or niche become hugely popular and the ones that I think are brilliant, no one listens to. So don't think that our stonking viewing figures are anything other than random chance. But uh, if you'd like to give people a quick recap as to what you covered on the previous podcast, I'm sure they'll be interested to know. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, I'm, I'm delighted to be back on your podcast. I think it's a really important event for for this for this topic, and the previous guest was on the climate change and the Green New Deal. I'm I'm trying to look for the title, but it was. Well, I don't worry about it too much, but uh, yeah, you gave us an intro on that, and we had hundreds and hundreds of people listen to that, which is quite nice. Yeah, so 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 well, that was about a year ago, wasn't it? it was quite a while. Ago. Go ahead. It was quite a while ago, wasn't it? It was about a year ago that you came on and did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on my my previous paper about the. Talking about the the need for for climate triage or tourniquet right away, and uh, and also the uh, the uh, renewable energy and materials economy that Peter Eisenberg has floated, and I I sort of uh, added to that a little bit and offered some you know economic policy uh, content as well in that in that podcast, and we got into a into a debate about, um, uh, I think that the basic debate was about the role of, of you know, government policy in in promoting the transition and how how fast that would be, how effective that is, and how how critical. Yeah, I mean, the, the Americans going for a more kind of interventionist industrial strategy approach at the moment, aren't they? Rather than going for something which is more based on taxation-led approach. So going back to kind of what you might found in the 60s and 70s more directly interventionist government approach which you know we'll see whether that works the problem with um with that style of um of government intervention is it tends to end up with a load of boondoggles so you end up paying a lot of money for ridiculous projects that some politician thought was a good idea rather than relying on the wisdom of the market to make its own decision but anyway we shall not cover that today because uh well we might we might overlap on that actually because they're okay. Yeah, well, but, we, uh, I am correct. I'm just and corrected. <laughs> and and just them. just on, on that point, actually, just to, the there'd been a they tried the the carbon tax in the U.S. It failed, and so this was the second. What Biden did the well, so called politically very hard to yeah. deliver a carbon tax, right? Because people they, view taxes as bad because they right that they won't be balanced balanced with government spending or subsidies or whatever, right? Well, the, the the Republican opposition. I mean, we have that in place in California, and you know, some you know, but but on the national level, there is no well offsetting or or carbon tax or anything like that. And so they went with the 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 second alternative, which was to, to provide carrots. And as you point yeah. out, and that and that has worked. You know, at least they they got that by Congress. But a lot of a lot of this has to do with the politics. I mean, I myself do favor, as you know, well as as you may recall. A you know the uh, the Kyoto you know some kind of uh, an offsetting a global regime. In in fact, I'm very supportive of that. I will get into that in this paper as well. Okay, so do you want to give us the title of the paper or papers? Because I think you're cheekily trying to sneak two in when I'm trying to get out to the gym. 
So give us the one that has actually been published that is a real paper that we can believe in rather than your unicorn fake fairy paper that might be published <laughs> in future if you get organized. So the, the, the real paper, so-called, is our two climate crisis challenge, short-run emergency direct climate cooling and long-run greenhouse gas removal and ecological regeneration. And that's been published in the Review of Radical Political Economics 2022. Okay. And when you say economics, you can do economics in a number of different ways. So you can have qualitative arguments, which most of my economics papers are. You can have squiggly graphs, you can have numbers, or you can have empirical data. So which is the approach that you've taken to do this? This this is 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 has qualitative and some numbers and data. So it's a kind of a mix of those a two. Hybrid, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, it, and, it does not include any fancy, you know, mathematical modeling. Okay, I've never understood that. I'm, yeah. It's never gone into any of my papers. <laughs> so, I have some, um, I have some, 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 some points on that and reference to some of the neoclassical modeling that's going on that we can talk about if you're so inclined. Okay, well, we can have a brief chat about that if you like. So, where did this paper go out again? I think you mentioned it, but I can't recall. It's the Review of Radical Political Economics, and it's the. That sounds uh, very. Sounds very commie. Is that a commie journal? No, it's well. It's you've won the Ron. Sorry, sorry. Back. Yeah, it's the journal of the of the Union for Radical Political Economics, which is the the professional association for heterodox economists in the U.S. And uh, for people who heterodox is just people who just won't do what they're told, right? It's the academic term for people who won't go uh, to church and say their prayers, right? Heterodox means non-neoclassical, basically. That is, there's one dominant school that's pervasive in academia around the world. About 90-some percent of economists adhere to that approach. But all other economists who are critical of that approach are called heterodox economists. And in the U.S., the the, the, the the RRPE, the Review for Radical Political Economics, and ERPE is the association, as one of the early, it came about in the 1960s, and that journal is one of the major outlets for, for heterodox or non-neoclassical economics on the progressive side. There's a, there's a small group of, of dissenters also on the conservative side, the more libertarian, uh, you know, Austrian economists and others who uh, approach a, it's kind of ultra-free market but they're, they, I would say they're, they're, they're quite small and, and not that, I mean, well, I'm, that's quite, I'm biased. That's but, quite strange because in the, in the social sciences, heterodox generally means not woke, right? So it's weird that the heterodox economists are the commies in your field and the heterodox uh, are the right-wing conservatives in you know, uh, philosophy or you know, psychology or other social sciences ending in uh, ology. That's go ahead. That's an interesting observation. Yeah, I think it and that it has to do with the situation of economics as a kind of dominant legitimation ideology for the for the economic system. So economists play a big role in 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 supporting the status quo. And so you're the you're the, you're the priests you're the priests in front of the army, right? Telling them that right. no matter what right. horrors they're about to commit, they're all doing it in God's name. So it's absolutely fine, right? More or less. Yeah, that's 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 the point. Okay. So so people that that say no, you know, we don't really want to play that role are 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 I mean it's it's actually extremely, you know, it this is not a joke. I mean it's very hard to get a job if you're a heterodox economist, for example. It's a, it's a well, form. Well, imagine because the neoclassical economics are much better at making money, right? Whereas the heterodox ones are 
the ones that go around in sandals and um, talk about how nice it would be if everyone had food and things like that. Well, they 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 are much dangerous able, they are. much more able to to make money and 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 you know hold prestigious appointments because they they adhere to the orthodoxy, which uh, you know is is the dominant, and also the dominant journals are all neoclassical orthodox journals. So if you if you don't if you don't start off with the with the accepted assumptions, then generally speaking, you you will not get published in a in a you know in in the so called you know top journals in economics. And the so-called Nobel Prize, which, as you know, is not really a Nobel Prize. It's this offered by the Swedish bank in honor of Alfred Nobel or somebody, a donor. I, I forget the name, Sergius something or other. But anyway, that also is is almost, I mean, I don't, I don't know of any major radical economist that has ever received that prize. There are some, some progressive economists have, but uh, it, we're pretty what's, much. What's a radical, what's a radical economist? What, well, it's a, it's. It's used in the U.S. and maybe a somewhat unfortunate name because you know people associate it with bomb throwers and so forth. But but it, it it's it's a broad group of it can be post Keynesians, uh, you know Kolesians, Schroffians, broad group of economists. You know Marxists, neo Marxists. It kind of spans the gamut. Uh, modern monetary theory economists. You know you you may be familiar with Steve Keen, who has done some. I think I mentioned to you some some excellent work in. In climate, on critiquing William Nordhaus and his dice model and the whole the whole group, yeah, which is complete rubbish. The dice model and everyone uses it for some reason, but it's absolute claptrap. The, right. the central right. problem has been pointed out. I mean, I, I I kind of know half a thing about this. So the idea yeah. is that with the dice model, you can equate climate change in space with climate change in time, right? So the idea being that you know Alaska's quite cold and Florida's quite warm. And so if you warmed up the world, so everything became warm like Florida, then it would just be like moving from Alaska to Florida, which is just nonsense. Just right. absolutely exactly. Exactly. hogwash, just not even approaching sensible or correct. Yeah, it's like saying, if I go upstairs, it's the same as me getting taller. It just doesn't make any sense at all, right? Right, right. No, and I, I agree completely. And Steve Keen has, has written, you know, a lot of that, you know, documented that copiously. And also this whole thing about the damage function, these made up damage functions. I mean, when I hear, you know, neoclassical economists talking about, you know, optimizing economic growth and, uh, you know, I just cringe because I know what they're talking about. And it's almost it's always optimizing economic growth means basically eating all the whales. Right. Because if we have a proper discount rate in place, then we're all going to get five percent interest on our money in a bank and therefore we can discount the value of a whale over 200 years and we can prove mathematically that we should kill and eat all the whales because they're tasty. That's basically the core of neoclassical economics, isn't it? That's the way they think. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they have very, very, uh, you know, tiny damage estimate based on these these damage functions, a relative, and, and they don't take into account tipping points. And as you say, they don't, they don't, you know, they they completely disregard some of the you know, really awful critical natural, you know, impacts in the, I mean, they're, they're ignoring the climate science basically. And Steve, Steve goes into that in great detail. And, and, okay. and so you basically got economy. he got a Nobel prize for this work and he has a whole, and he has had enormous influence on the IPCC. So it's, it's a real problem. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very serious problem. Uh, the, okay, so basically problem. what you're saying is econo- economists can easily be divided into two camps. You've got 
lentil munching sandal wearers who are boring at parties and then you've got people with big sexy cars that will sell their grandchildren to satan <laughs> well it's uh yeah i mean anyways yes i mean uh, uh, that's you know I, I mean just just to be fair about this i don't think my my academic economists colleagues who are neoclassicals many of them are liberals i mean well u.s liberals meaning progressives politically but they have been trained in this in this very narrow kind of mindset and they teach this stuff that this is this is like physics you know these this is the science of economics well everyone has to be a liberal in u.s academia you can't be a conservative and survive in u.s academia because <laughs> you get crucified in a car park don't you if you say that you think that Trump was quite a good president, and that's it. You know, you're being nailed to a cross straight away after lunch. So, yeah. Um, yeah. For, for the most part, I mean, so economists often teach in business schools and stuff, so they're not, they're not, you know, uniformly liberal, but but most of them are, you know, and most of them, you know, are, you know, do believe in in in, in public funding, you know, large public sector and social safety nets and the importance of, you know, broadly speaking, you know, sustaining unemployment and doing something about the environment and the climate crisis and so forth is just their their basic fundamental principles of the models that they're working with and the models they're teaching students push in the opposite direction like like supply and demand for example that whole supply and demand meme that is you know essential part of every intro economics course it turns out it, you know it, it's an ideology it's not it has it's it's completely divorced from reality so supply curves don't exist for most of, most of the production economy so that's that i wrote a book on this as you know i sent that to you as well and you know we forgot and, to do our intro properly because i was too busy amping your previous episode to get even more people to listen to it but what's your affiliation and professional job role because I, I completely forgot to ask you about that and don't expect me to have remembered that from when you told me a year ago because i certainly remember that Oh, I'm 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 a assistant professor of economics at Benedictine University, in uh, which is outside Chicago. It's a, you know a Catholic university. It's a kind of an interesting story how I how I ended up here because you know I'm I'm Jewish and uh, well, but, it's a Catholic uh, <laughs> university. Is that like a normal university but without condoms or what? Uh, <laughs> well, it's uh, it's yeah, it was founded by Benedictine monks. I, over a hundred years ago and that, you know, in, in Chicago. And it was mostly, I think it was Czech. It was kind of a Czech, Czech, ethnic Czech students went there and then moved out to the suburbs some time ago in Lyle, Illinois, which is where it is now. And uh, yeah, it's a fairly liberal, I mean, I would say at this point, the monks have actually disowned us. Uh, there was a, you know, actually during my time there, there was kind of a rift between the monks and the, and the university and so well, we think you're a bunch of he godless heathens. Well, now. is that right? Um, they 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 apparently believe so, but but you know we well, still they, they might be right. They might be uh, right. I don't want to I don't want to stand in judgment on these things. They might be. I I mean it, but but you know I think we have we have also have you know God 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 fearing members amongst us as well in the faculty, or okay. you know, but uh, but yeah. So so but. Traditionally, you know, it, it still maintains the Benedictine University and, and and identifies as a Catholic university. So, but but you know, before that, I did I I did spent many years in the policy area uh, and utility regulation and uh, and state policy, Illinois state policy. You know, analyzing state budgets and so forth. Uh, and, and the government and you're here to help, right? Is that right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You try to and and then. 
And then before that, I was I was in the private sector. I actually worked for AT&T for a while as a, as a forecaster, econometric forecaster, tele, telecommunications demand way back, you know, in New Jersey. So from forecast to podcasts, how the mighty have fallen, eh? So <laughs> thanks for the intro. I just want to understand a bit more about your paper because um, you've got uh, 36 minutes before I'm going to have to go on a swimming pool. So let's sure. um, so, hurry up. Yeah. So so I think, you know, I have I sort of four key points I've kind of summarized here. I think be a, a nice quick summary of the paper. But the major point is that we're facing two climate crises, not just one. Uh, the first one is a short-term crisis of warming that requires immediate implementation of tourniquets or to reduce or stop the planet's bleeding in the form of direct climate cooling. And, you know, that, that's the first point, that we have the real crisis, the real immediate emergency crisis is a cooling crisis. It's not, you know, the second. And that's 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 really important to get across because, you know, the the as I go in the paper, we have a kind of dis- disconnect between the, uh, the the climate science that are that are you know screaming hair on fire that you know tipping points are about to occur that this is getting worse and worse it's unraveling it's fast uh, happening you know occurring much faster than we predicted and you've got to do something about this and the politicians that got their their marching orders from the kind of earlier period when the climate scientists were all saying you know we have just have to cut those greenhouse gas emissions and. And if we if we do that, then, you know, we'll be OK. So the politicians are now checking the box saying, you know, yeah, you know, so we do this and that to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We'll get to net zero by, you know, whatever target year. And so we're, we're addressing the climate crisis. And the point of that first point, the, the, the short term crisis is that that greenhouse gas cutting is not going to do anything to help the short term situation. That's a long-term thing, and that's the second crisis, which is a longer-term and more fundamental crisis of greenhouse gas emissions reduction and drawdown and ecological generation that may take, that will take multiple decades and possibly a century or more at the rate that we're going. So that it is sounds very like George Shepard's nap- napkin diagram, right? Is this yeah, yeah, your it's fundamental like, premise here, right? Yeah, but it's in the paper. Actually, it's on anyway. You know, the pages don't matter. People don't have it, but it is. It is included a version of that, the famous napkin diagram. If I can, it's Shepard and Long, I believe, right? That first came up yeah. with this. So I have a version of that, and I haven't seen her for a while now. I think, and John Shepard's retired himself, hasn't he? So I don't know what's happened to her. Has she retired as well, or not? I I couldn't tell you. You know, you would be more familiar than that, with that than I am, I think. But, but the what I did want to point out is that I mean, because I'm I'm sort of addressing um, a person, the somebody who uh, now I'm trying to find Florin, and I forget her first name, but she had proposed a proposal that we we wait until we have a a a plan that everybody's agreed to to. To reduce greenhouse gases and and draw down greenhouse gases, uh, well, that's never going to happen. Is it? Before we implement SAI, and I'm pointing out that you know you know it's it's nice you know I like that you're you're finally sort of getting to the main point. That, but here it is on page eight of the paper that I sent you. But unfortunately, you know, if we wait until we have an agreement to do all this, it'll probably be too late. I mean, we need to do something now. And it doesn't necessarily have to be SAI. I mean, we can do low-risk climate cooling right now. 
you know, the painting what is low white, risk climate cooling. Low How risk. Would I know it if I saw it. Well, it's generally localized, and it has to. A lot of it has to do with with albedo enhancement, right? Increasing reflectivity. Okay. So mirrors and fields, painting roofs white. There's we have in the other paper nineteen different methods uh, for for direct climate cooling, and many of them are these. You know, you could refreeze the Arctic. I mean, you know, pumping seawater on top of the Arctic. Or you know to to refurbish ice in the winter, you can do even right now. This is being done in the Australian Great Barrier Reefs. You know, spraying seawater into the marine clouds to try and make them brighter. Marine cloud brightening. Um, well, that's true. But many of the climate hazards are quite global, and they affect areas of the world that are quite inaccessible. So you've got things like permafrost melting in Siberia, and you've got glaciers in the Himalayas you know it's not very easy to go up the Himalayas and insert thousands of mirrors on glaciers right you know it's a tricky place to operate in so how practical are these ideas compared to flying SAI emissions I would have thought the SAI would be a bit easier really so so the, the argument would be that yes I absolutely support research pilot studies you know trying to you know be ready to do the the higher SAI and, you know, other, uh, you know, serious cloud thinning and so forth, other uh, higher leverage, higher risk uh, methods that we may indeed have to do at the rate we're going. But the other ones are funny. You mentioned the Himalayan glaciers. We have uh, surface albedo modification by Leslie Field, who is as is right now, you know, piloting, putting little... little was it ice 911 stuff? Well, she was, but now she has bright ice. She Yes, yeah, so they've rebranded it, but it's still the same stuff. You still uh, little it's a different group. They're, they're one group, and she, but it's the same. I think the same technique. Yeah, it's the little glass, down. hollow glass microspheres that they use for yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's working out dividing insulation and things like that. Right, right? and then right, right. And she's. I'm not, I'm not very too. sold on that. I'm not very sold on that because those things. I, I'm not sure whether they float or whether they sink. But if they sink, then they're going to end up being kind of sharp little things that go into benthic sediments and potentially modify so, the environment. And if they float, then they're going to be affect surface organisms. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I want to actually uh, ask so you she, about... She tested that on, on various places in, in Minnesota and lakes and stuff. And I mean, I'm not an expert on this. Our point is that these are all potential methods. And some of them are very simple, like planting trees, you know, in urban areas to reduce the, the urban heat effect, you know, that, Yay, Tao, you may know the mirrors. You know, he says if you put those, he's also tested these. In yeah, the we've, had, um, we've had the mirror people on the show. We've right. already asked them about their their, their mirrors. Right. So if people are interested in that, they can come on and, right. and uh, right. have a listen to that. Right. So so the, 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 some of the many some of these effects actually have local economic benefits. You know, you cool your, at least in terms of, you know, what the data that we know so far. So. We're not saying all of these are, are you know, effective or, or useful, but, you know, there's certainly many, many possibilities. Some of them, I mean, I have a, a list of 19 is in the, in the other paper, but there, there are some things that, uh, for example, generating ocean from the, from the heat gradient, because 90% of the heat is going to the ocean. So one, uh, we have a couple of proposals that are, that are proposing to use that heat in the ocean to generate energy you know, if, if, for example, in the form of a chemical carrier like hydrogen that you can also create in the ocean. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those. Uh, so, Pete, uh, is it called OTEC, Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion? Yeah, one, of them is, one of them is OTEC, and a, a, a new one is, is Waxon, 
but uh, it's a different different technique. But the in the OTEC, and I know that's right. And now I recall, you know, you you were on the some of the the, the listserv discussion on that. Um, let, the, let, I mean, let me just let me just address the fundamental concern with that OTEC stuff. Um, yeah. The problem is that the efficiency of a power station is determined by the temperature difference between the heat source and the heat sink, right? And so the less temperature difference you have, then the less efficient it's possible for that power station to be. And the challenge you've got with that OTEC stuff is that, you know, the, the top layer of the ocean and the bottom layer of the ocean are only different by a few tens of degrees. Whereas if you think about a nuclear power station, it's a few hundreds of degrees. So, you know, there's an enormous difference in theoretical efficiency between the two. And therefore, you know, there's a, a real question as to whether there's any point in, in doing this kind of stuff. The, the efficiency limitations of these power stations mean that I'm just a bit concerned. Firstly, I'm concerned that it would ever be viable. You know, I think there have been a couple of stations in Hawaii or whatever around the world where people have tried this stuff, but I don't think it ever really took off. And you now we're in a, a generation where uh, renewable energy is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as people make more and more and more of these highly scalable, low-cost systems like solar panels or wind turbines that just get replicated and standardised and built in ever larger factories. So it's difficult to see how OTEC could compete, really. I'm not an expert OTEC, but method is is using a a, a low boiling point working fluid. It, it's not the original OTEC, and and this was patented by a Los Alamos physicist some years ago. And so Jim Baird, who is our the expert on on OTEC, is actually working. Uh, with some some clients on 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 putting you know doing this at scale and and his estimates indicate a, a lower cost per kilowatt than 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 any kind of so existing solar so I mean this is again their estimates <laughs> so I don't want to get into a debate about this but it's another you know the idea You're already of, in one it's too late you can't escape now <laughs> well I'm Trapped. not a person you got you've got to debate Jim but. I have not got a debate, Jim. I do not want <laughs> to debate, Jim. I do not like OTEC, and I don't want to talk about okay. it. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> let me let me just finish my point. There there are methods that potentially can cool and generate economic benefits at the same time. So those are particularly interesting. The the Waxon method also is is rather new by Akim Hoffman, and based in the UK actually, and he's working on a method to to. I don't I don't really understand it because I you know kind of ocean chemistry and the and using that to to generate hydrogen as well and harvest the heat. So so there there are all kinds of potential options out there is what I'm saying. And let me let me you know we don't always have to focus just on SAI and even stratospheric or or you know SRM. That that's a, that's a, that is a large group of of methods, but that's not all of them. And some of those well, are, I understand that. I mean, yeah, the problem yeah, is yeah. that people, people, things like desert cooling 15 years ago. And the problem with cooling methods that are localized is, yes, they, they can work in principle and they can provide, if you're using them to mitigate the urban heat island effect, then yeah, there's a degree of benefit that comes from that. Cities get hotter than the surrounding countryside. But if you start going beyond that and looking at regional scale interventions that make a real difference to the, the climate of a much larger whole Earth system region, it starts to do some really weird stuff to the Earth climate. So I'm generally a bit sceptical and like most of the people I know who've got quite a lot of respect for in this field when they're not sort of grinding one technology or another because it's their thing the people who've reviewed this sort of stuff have been quite critical really of those regional cooling approaches because 
we've got this inherent problem of uh, imbalance that when you're cooling one area then you're changing the climate dynamics that surround it right it's not an easy thing to do to get right right so so i'm not we're not saying that this is the solution we're just saying that in the same way that you know if, if you take out you know a ton of carbon you know greenhouse gas right now it's not going to solve the greenhouse gas problem you know these are these are t- tiny steps that we can take right now why and and yes i agree you know probably eventually or likely we'll need to resort to a more global solution but do well, i'm not saying we do or we don't in this right, context right, of this right. argument what i'm saying right. is that I, i'm not one thing i'm pretty convinced that we don't or don't want to do is to do something that involves massively cooling one region and not cooling well, another region because that's going to so, cause so these don't massively problems. they don't you know i agree with you i mean if for example and i think we agree on this too to you know as a as a way to sort of gradually test out for example sai you probably want to do it in the polar regions first you know, just maybe in the spring, you know, try and cool things off in the... Yeah, Stan Vizioni and Doug McMartin have worked on yeah, that yeah. approach. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And you want to have balance and so forth. So, yes, I agree with all this stuff. But I'm just saying, there, you know, right now, you know, instead of, you know, need to work on the short-term crisis right now, which is cooling. And when you say right we... now, I mean, like, that's quite a bold step to say right now. I mean, well, yeah, like, you can you... paint roofs white right now. You can use, you know, light colored pavement. You can plant trees right now. You can do. Yeah, but these are all urban heat island effects, right? They, they have to no, make a difference the, uh, quality of life, but they don't change the climate. They are there. They, they will cool a little bit in certain areas. So he putting mirrors out in fields. I mean, Ye says that that helps. That can help the farmers. They can grow more when they're when their fields are a little bit. Well, yeah, but you gotta, those I'm not. I'm not saying that any of this stuff is not sensible. I'm, you know, there are potentially roles for it. You know, if you've got an urban park, then putting mirrors up to shade the urban park or plant some trees or whatever, you know, they, they can all make difference. And, you know, people in, in older colonial era American cities, they used to make, is it, is it colonnades? You have these covered places where people would walk on the street. Mm-hmm. You, you don't walk under the buildings anymore. You, the, the buildings are flat fronted because we have air conditioning and so yeah. the streets are much more strongly heated and if you're in the south in the summer houston a couple of years ago and that's really gruesome in july it's not a very nice place to be wouldn't recommend it three out of five stars quite an interesting place but the climate is definitely not a selling point in july hot and humid and sticky so for local adaptation i think that they work but my concern is that you know it's all very well to kind of advocate this stuff, but it's all a bit kind of motherhood and apple pie, isn't it? It's okay. hard to object to. It doesn't really do anything. Right. I don't want to get into, you know, you can mess with, you know, the water cycle and, you know, there are all kinds of things. But yes, you know, so let's let's move on because I think we basically agree on, on this point. I, I may be wrong, but the second the second issue, the longer term problem of, of drawing down greenhouse gas emissions I mean, recent modeling suggests, and again, this is not well known, but the recent modeling suggests that when you get to net zero, you actually stay at that plateau of warming, where whenever that is, the ocean will continue to, to absorb, take down carbon. But the, according, you know, and I'm I'm not making, you know, I'm I'm getting this. I can I can there, there's a the paper is referred to in the in that larger paper. There's a you know, a, this is this is really the. The most recent modeling with the most, you know, fancy climate science models. So the, the carbon is, there's an offsetting effect. So 
the carbon will gradually will will be continued to, to draw down, but the ocean will also be releasing all the heat it has been absorbing during all that time. And apparently those two things balance out. So that the net impact is basically the temperature and that, you know, it's there's a range of different models predict different things, but on average it's basically Wait. flat. For 50 well, years yeah, look, hold, after hold net on, zero, okay, the, the but, heating I mean, stays where it is for 50 years after net zero. Not because well, I, haven't, I haven't seen that paper, so I can't comment on it. Send me a link for that. But, but let me explain Let yeah. me explain why intuitively that feels like, like it's wrong. And I think that there's a, there's a corollary to this, which I'll go into in a moment. So even if the ocean's heat, heated up, the ocean would have, would have heated up prior to the, reaching net zero anyway. And so... The, the the actual thermal power that's going into the ocean will fall as soon as you hit that peak CO2 concentration because your greenhouse effect has maxed out, right? And so after that, your power, the thermal power that's going to the ocean will fall. And yeah, the temperature of the ocean will be a bit higher, but won't have as much power going into it. And so it will buffer the temperature because the oceans are really good integrator of heat so it won't cause net, net warming as you were as you were suggesting. well and I, I this is you know I, I can i have the reference here if you're interested it's called okay. it's a, it's a paper by a whole bunch of different i don't know like 20 or 30 well, authors well it ain't your paper so i can't is there warming in the pipeline a multi-model analysis of yes emissions yeah, co2 and that's it's it's i don't have the year well, but it's recent well, i think it's 2022 okay well fine the complexity is that you know the if you've got aerosol masking that's reduced by a transition to a low carbon um and leon sybens uh, is the guy who's done a lot of work on this the aerosol because, masking is, is another issue but the current yeah. aerosol masking but anyway so but but the net you know this is true or even if it's not we know we have to draw down massive amounts of greenhouse gas you know to, to reduce the stock because it's not primarily a flow problem it's a stock problem and and that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort. And part of that, you know, clearly is going to have to be done by, you know, by natural drawdown. You know, it's not all technological. So various ways to enhance kind of natural sinks uh, to get that job done. And that will also refurbish, uh, regenerate, I should say, our, our ecosystem that is that is being devastated. I mean, that is part of the long-term crisis is that we've, we've basically, you know, the, the planet can't carry us the way we're the way we're using natural resources right now are destroying natural resources and species not not if we all eat burgers it can't no but <laughs> so we, anyway, could, we could have a lot more people on the planet if we all were a bit more sensible about it yeah no i, I agree and that's part of it is to is to so i call that the transition from the from the hunter-gatherer industrial civilization that we have now where we're we're basically mining and you know harvesting energy fossil energy wherever we can and whoever you know lays claim to that gets gets to you know extract enormous profit uh, from that. It's a you know kind of rentier rentier extraction to a a, a farmer cultivator civilization industrial civilization that would rely in great part on harvesting energy from 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 the sun from the from the ocean from you know all over the globe the wind not it wouldn't be so concentrated in in specific locations and. And also a lot of minerals as well, you know, get the carbon from the air and a lot of minerals from the ocean and that are be widely available and would has the potential to be a must, must in addition to being more obviously sustainable, more just an equitable kind of civilization. So the, as the promised land, once we get through Sinai, 
but it's going to take many, many years as it did in the you know, when the Jews left Egypt. You're chucking in a couple of Old Testament references there. Right, right. So, I think um, it's important to hold out hope. Yeah, okay. Uh, I was just struck by the, your particular choice of metaphor. You could have chosen something from the Terminator or Peppa Pig, but you chose the Bible. So there you go. Thought I'd mention it. So, okay, your, your key point seems to be it's going to get a bit hot and then we've got lots of carbon dioxide to deal with. So what's the novelty in your paper? Because so, you come desired to come back on review two and tell us how great it is i'm not i'm struggling to see what what you're saying that hasn't been said a million times before i think some of those things are important to say that that we just talked about but also you know the paper goes into this dispute the silo problem between social science and natural science and part of the problem here is i think that the 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 climate active climate scientists and climate activists are generally not politicians you know they're not they're not elected officials where there's elections or not so so they they are a little bit divorced from the real world concerns of actual people that aren't thinking about the climate all the time and i have the examples in the paper that are pretty well known you know the former president of ecuador that said okay you know i agree we have a climate you know terrible climate crisis and the last thing we need to do is is cut down rainforest and the ecuador had one of the most fertile rainforests in the world and we just happened to have discovered oil in our rainforest and so if you give me half the money that i would you know estimated to generate from that oil discovery then i will not drill in the rainforest and he had the opened up a fund and he was actually being helped at the time by a i think it was a norwegian pension fund or something it was was helping them do things, you know, to maintain that rainforest, which, which also was the the home of an indigenous native people. And but when they discovered oil, he said, "Well, you know, I can't just forego these potential billions of dollars of revenue for my my poor country to to save the rainforest, you know, to save the planet because I have the immediate needs of my poor, desperate citizens of Ecuador to consider." And nobody, you know, he he was unable. He had that for many years, trying to trying to raise funding. The, the Norwegian fund. I'm not, I'm not blaming them in particular because it was obviously much too big a lift for one single fund. But he was unable to even get anywhere near close to what the half of the revenue of the oil. And so now that doesn't surprise raise. me. And that's so the, they're going to go and chop down all the annoying trees that are getting in the way of the oil. <laughs> well. Yes, you know, effectively, they're you know they're claiming they're going to try and do it in the least you know disruptive method and so forth. They but it's did. already having enormously disruptive effects. There's a big article in the New York Times on that. It's an interesting Another, little aside, Ron. But what what is so, new about your paper? I'm trying so to understand what's the, the new thing. The so I estimated Mexico the same thing. The leftist president, you know, is is now buying oil refineries in Houston to refine Mexican oil because again you know the country depends on it so you know most most oil companies are national oil companies they're not the the majors that people think about all the time and they're and their their local economies are quite dependent you yeah know, like Saudi Aramco and things right. like that right they can be very corrupt and so forth but you know they're they're an indispensable source of foreign currency so I went and estimated that in my paper I looked at the World Bank data and looked at all the countries let me pull up that that Wander off again, Moran. You go. Mike's gone with. So, if you look at the table one on page five and table two on page six of the draft that I sent you, or the you know the preprint or whatever it is that it's the 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 online version of the paper, 
you will see that looking at World Bank data, uh, and I'm looking at the uh, the export share of fossil fuel export share. This is fossil fuel and and related, so it's you know lubricants and other things. It's oil and other related exports to to oil. Uh, so Table two in particular lists all the countries with over 10% of their exports dependent on on oil, basically, on liquid fossil fuel exports. And that, when you sum all that up, it's about 1.1 billion people, about, I think it's 14%, yeah, 14.2% of the global population, this 2019 data. And the amount of money from those exports adds up to over $4 trillion. So, you know, just to offset the existing earnings from from fossil fuel by all these countries would require four trillion over four trillion dollars, and that's you know not counting all the the multiplier effects of the, the jobs and whatever else that generates. And we're not even talking so, so you know about investing in new methods to to generate income and and you know move on to the... Okay, so oil, so oil is important to the global economy. I get it. So what's new about your paper? So, well, uh, first of all, I think the numbers are important. So the, there's an earlier table which has even a higher share, but I won't go into that. So the, the second point, major point, you know, uh, is that the existing, for example, the... Let me see if I can find those, that data here. The existing effort... Because everybody said we keep talking about, yeah, we need to transfer money. There has to be, you know, global equity and so forth. And if we don't get global equity, we're not going to get this long-term transition anytime soon, anyway. And 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 we did have a regime. We had the the Kyoto Accord that did raise. And I'm trying to find quickly find my numbers here. The the Kyoto Accord, which had a regime, it was a it was a you know it was a, it was an offsetting regime called the it was called the development mechanism. Here we go. Clean development mechanism, isn't it? No, wait. No. The Kyoto one was called the um, uh, clean development mechanism. Correct. Gold star for Andrew. Got it right. So that raised about three hundred and three point eight billion over the was was in effect from two thousand fourteen to twenty twenty one, but in the in the latter part, the people already knew it was collapsing. You know, they there was a little incentive. You know, they, because there, there were problems with a lot of these contracts. And I agree, there are problems with the contracts. There's a, another radical economist colleague who has addressed that. And actually, he's he's not a big fan of markets. But in this case, he says, you know, if you had nations being responsible for their for their, you know, greenhouse gas levels that they've they've committed to, then you make them, you know, do whatever they need. Those are the things you can measure much more easily. You know, especially now with satellite data and so forth, you know, what are the actual national, you know, larger area greenhouse gas emissions, not individual contracts. And you hold the nations to the contracts that parties in their in their jurisdiction have signed in terms of offsetting. Because I know a lot of leftists were actually very much against the regime, the global cap and fund regime. So that collapsed. Yeah, it was certainly criticized quite a lot. Right. And that was replaced. Because people are, I think my understanding of it is that there was a sort of general view that problems created by markets can't be solved by markets. And I'm not quite sure whether that's where that came from, but it doesn't sound very logical to me. So there's a, there's a lack of understanding that this is a public good, you know, you can do it anywhere and it makes absolute sense to do it where it's most effective and most easily done and most beneficial, frankly, you know, which is is carbon. You're talking about abatement there, right? 
Well, that, that, well, that was addressed to abatement. Graciela Chichelniski, who was actually the designer and chief you know, sponsor of the, of the Kyoto Accord. She's a, a Columbia economist. Well, she, she went on to find, found global thermostat. That's correct. She? That's correct. Um, and recently left it after what could best be described as a hoo-ha. Well, I, and, yeah, I know there was, you talked with Peter on your podcast about that. And yes, but before that happened, but it was already, there were, there were some issues. But, but she's also, by the way, responsible for the 45Q. So she's been, you know. Was she? Yeah, yeah. She, she worked with, I think it was Sheldon, a Rhode Island senator, and got, yeah. So, you know, this is, she's, you know, and, and actually in her book, she says, yeah, you know, obviously we need to go, around, go beyond just abatement or, you know, mitigation. We need to, we need to talk about funding drawdown. And so you need to extend that regime to, to incentivizing negative emissions technologies of which, you know, global thermostat is, is one example. Uh, but uh, so, so that was replaced in 2015. The Paris climate said, no, no, we're not going to extend Kyoto anymore. And, and to be fair about this, the U.S. never signed it, which was a big problem, you know, even though. Yeah, I remember getting very cross about that in my 20s yeah, yeah. and went on yeah. lots, of, lots of marches about that. Right. Interesting. We ratified it because they said it would be bad for economic development. So Graciela went on and said, look, you know, some of these negative emissions technology will be good for economic development. So we can kind of square the circle. We can we can, you know, reduce greenhouse gases and generate energy at the same time and, you know, support the kind of development that just what I was talking about in the in the developing world that absolutely critically needs more energy, more energy. And that's part of the problem. You know, you you not only have to replace their existing energy, you know, fossil fuel product. You've got to replace, you know, you they need more. So much more. So, yeah, uh, that's the, the fridges argument I often make. It's like it's very easy to say, oh, and we're all in favor of mitigation, aren't we? And I was like, mm, well, about a billion people in the world don't have access to refrigeration. Right. So what about them? I'd rather give them a fridge, thank you, than have more mitigation. Because I value whether people have got access to refrigeration. I think it's quite important. I've got a fridge right. and I, right. quite, I think right. it's great. Right. And that's going to get worse and worse now with all the heating and stuff. So, and you know, drying and everything else. So so anyway, so they replaced that with the with the, the solution to that was supposed to be the Green Climate Fund. I think that's what it was called. Anyway, and that that one raised, yeah, it was the the Green Climate Fund set up in the, in the Paris Accord. They they have only raised 18.2 billion so far, and and you know there are all kinds of questions about where does know, that money come from when it lives the Kyoto Protocol did 303 billion. That's quite a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, that's like a significant chunk of the U.S.'s federal budget for a year. So, what? Um, where did that money all come from? The original money came because the the countries that signed the agreement were under legal obligation, the companies were to buy offsets. And so okay. they sent a, off all this was offset money that, you know, a lot of it was sent to China. Through red and red and stuff like that, right? Okay. Uh, to, yeah, for, for reforestation and so forth. And, and you know, we get in, you know, a good part of it was spent on ramping up solar cell production in China. And we had this discussion before. I actually have a paper from the IEA, the International Energy Association, that documents the, uh, it's the International Energy Agency, I think you find one. If I'm, I'm not sorry. mistaken. I think it's the International, International Energy Agency. Agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they just came out with a report this year. I, I'll send it to you. I was going to, but I, I haven't yet. Okay. Documenting the very important role that the, the ramping up of solar cell production in China played in, in getting those prices for solar cells down. And we had this debate in the other podcast. But 
this, you know, okay. I think part of the and 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 Rossiello points out that a lot of the money from these offsets went to, to that, although it was it was supplemented by a lot more money. This is my dog. Sorry, let me just get her out. It's the first time we've been interrupted by a dog on Review of Tea podcast. Okay. Un- unexpected interruption. Yeah, so so a lot of it went to to solar, and and I've heard recent reports that also a lot of it went to wind, you know, windmill turbine uh, production scaling up. So I think part of the issue here was that people were concerned that you know China was getting a kind of a, a huge subsidy uh, for taking over many of these technologies. So there there are other issues here, kind of geopolitical issues. That did happen. If you're going to yeah, go yeah. into solar panels now, they all come from China, didn't they? Don't they? So right, right, right. It's and, not, it wasn't made up. Right. But, but you know, the issue of whether, you know, one country should be allowed to kind of monopolize critical technologies is, is an important issue using, using, you know, industrial policy to just kind of take over a sector. The Green Climate Fund was just purely voluntary donations. If anybody thinks, you know, a politician can go out and say, yeah, yeah, you know, you got to solve the climate crisis. I'm going to I'm going to take, you know, X billions out of our budget and give it to the Green Climate Fund. And that that's going to make them popular with their local constituents. You know, I can sell them a bridge in Brooklyn. You know, on the, you know, it just doesn't work. So there's only limits. There's very uh, there's very tight limits to what individual politicians can do in terms of donating to some kind of global cause that is not backed up by mandatory global policy regime. For example, I have the example in the paper of who would have thought that? I mean, I'm not a free trader. I don't believe in you know, I have a whole book on on the problems with the, the free trade doctrine, but but nobody would have ever argued that you could just have you know create a free trade international policy regime based on voluntary commitments, right? So they have this whole they enforce it. That's how it's you know the, the WTO operates. The rules based oh. international order. Ron, I'm yeah, going to have yeah, yeah. to so, um, draw you to a, a fairly brisk close because I have a hard stop today, unusually. So um, if you could try and finish up in the next few minutes and tell me what your paper is actually about, it'd be great. Okay, well, kind of, you know, I think, you know, that the final point is that the the one re- area in the world that did continue the Kyoto Accord is is the European Union that continued a cap and trade system throughout the European Union supplemented with by carbon taxes. And they have been the one major area of the world that actually successfully threw down emissions by 24% from 1990 to 2019. US emissions over that period increased by 2%. Now it's a little bit of a, a false comparison because the US actually grew much faster during that period than the EU. But even if you take that into account, and you take into account the fact that both of those regions of the world were outsourcing a lot of their their manufacturing to China and other, you know, Eastern Europe and other other platforms. Even taking that into account, if you, the size of the European industrial sector is still by share much larger, it didn't decline any as much as as the U.S. industrial sector did. And so, you know, even taking all those things into account, Europe still remains you know, the only major region of the world that has actually successfully cut carbon emission, not slowed the growth of it, actually cut significantly from 1990 using a cap and trade. So so the takeaway from all this stuff is that if we're going to be realistic about that long-term problem, it's going to require politics and politics of 
you know, doing something about global development, about the massive inequity. I mean, the fact is most of these countries are now in, in deep debt to the center countries, right? Because of all the third world debt. And so the first part of this is just to forgive the debt. You know, if you're going to talk about trying to subsidizing a, a green transition, so the, I was the, wondering about that the other day, actually, because there, there was that Jubilee 2000 movement that resulted in a lot of forgiveness for predatory yeah. debt in the early 2000s. But I don't know what's happened since then. I just haven't heard a lot about the third world debt since then. So has it has it been sorted out or did it just not get well, sorted out? Has it been rumbling on or what? I think there, you know, there, there are some specific programs for heavily indebted programs. I mean, I'm, again, I'm, this is not my expertise, but I have seen no indication that that debt has significantly declined in its burden. In fact, private debt as a whole, both both in the in developing countries and developed countries, has increased, you know, increased dramatically up to 2008. And then and it was and because most of those those the global finance was bailed out, that debt burden has been maintained. It was not it was not erased or wiped out or defaulted on. So it was many cases transferred from the private sector to the public sector in, in Europe in particular that 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 occurred. So but there's been uh, but there's been um, economic growth accompanying, right? So people's uh, increasing failure to reduce debt doesn't necessarily mean that the debt burden remains the same in uh, relative terms because if countries get richer and many many countries in the developing world have, then uh, that will have an effect. I don't think the ratios are are, are, are favorable. That's another paper yeah. that we've touched yeah. upon. And, and the, access to. So. The key thing, though, is that, you know, this is another reason why that short term problem is so critical, because it's going to it's we need we absolutely need to, to do cooling right away. We can start doing that with these, you know, small measures. Those small measures are, are, are like the small measures we're taking for greenhouse gas reduction. So, you know, just because it's small doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't do it. We should do it. And then, you know, yes, to finish, to actually complete the job, we we we, we quite possibly will need to resort to SAI and other other more more higher leverage methods, you know, after we, but, you know, we want to do that gradually and pilot them and research and so forth. And, uh, you know, the whole emphasis right now needs to be on cooling. And the other thing is a longer term project. And, and, and I think it actually requires to be realistic about it, to get it done at scope and at scale and at speed requires a global a global policy regime for all the reasons that I that I mentioned. Okay. Well thank you for coming on and linking mitigation, adaptation and geoengineering, giving us an economics revisitation of Long and Shepherd's napkin diagram. It's been a baffling episode and i'm gonna to have to go back and listen <laughs> mitigation drawdown in drawdown not 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 well, not not adapt adaptation drawdown is is key if we're gonna okay. yeah you're, you're drawing the three-legged stool in a different way i'm using mitigation adaptation and geoengineering as a conventional sort of triad of climate responses but you're you've obviously put much more focus onto the short-term cooling and the long-term drawdown and you know some people might say that things like cool roofs and things like that, the regional stuff that you've been talking about, they would view that as being adaptation, not geoengineering, because it's not changing the global radiation budget significantly. So I do think it's a fair comment to say that you can summarise what you've done as mitigation, adaptation and geoengineering. But anyway, without further ado, it's and cooling. for the ceremony... Yeah, it's cooling, but it's localized cooling. So, so yeah. some some of that may be small scale, some of it may be larger scale. So, the, of the nineteen methods 
there there are many different you know and some of them directly no, the ice the ice 911 yeah the ice 911 idea well not not that but there's the, the 19 methods some of them like the you know the the reef you know various ways to increase ice in the arctic and so forth they these are they're they're they 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 directly address things like polar amplification and and you know so i think there's there's room for for looking at all those things and 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 i think it's really important to expand the dialogue beyond this single-minded focus on the binary choice of you know sai or not i'm saying it's not a binary choice sai isn't a binary choice because you can do it gradually you know so this this kind of black and white dialogue that people keep having debates about i think is is very ill-informed about how you know reasonably go about this 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 problem of cooling okay ron your time is up your money's run out um you i'm gonna rush through your objection and go for a swim thanks for coming on okay well thank you for having me on andrew i appreciate it yep have a good swim yep (laughs) bye-bye